I think it's riskier not to innovate. I am bringing with the team generative AI and testing things that will have taken me like maybe like two years in a bigger company. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive and Parity and Element. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 90, and today's guest is Sabrina Cherubini. Sabrina is the SVP of Brand and Digital at lingerie brand Hanky Panky. Her career has taken her from the agency side of marketing to the brand side, where she's worked with Sears and Taylor and now Hanky Panky. She also has scratched her entrepreneurial itch along the way as well. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sabrina Cherubini, the SVP of Brand and Digital at iconic lingerie brand Hanky Panky, where she oversees accelerating global growth through the power of creative brand building and digital innovation. An experienced, inspirational, and collaborative leader, Sabrina excels in motivating and mentoring teams, especially with her vast knowledge surrounding executing strong consumer-centric strategies in a fast-paced environment. Sabrina heads all of Hanky Panky's brand and D2C strategies from initial planning to execution. She guides the team in ensuring program effectiveness as it relates to brand growth, as well as ensures overall success by maintaining the brand's reputation as both a pioneer and leader within the intimates apparel industry. Sabrina's adept at growing global brand revenue and equity based on her previous experiences at lead advertising firms, including Leo Burnett, Havas, and Publicis. After 10 years, she left the agency side and what I like to call the dark sides, my listeners know, uh, and led marketing and customer strategies for apparel brands in fast-growing startups and U.S. Fortune 500 companies, such as Ann Taylor Law. She's previously lived in Sweden, Finland, France, and San Francisco. Sabrina's passionate about sociology and understanding the emotional and rational aspects of human behaviors. She uses her empathy, and that's a word that comes up a lot in this show. Well, maybe we'll talk about that as a way to connect and her analytical skills as a way to understand. Sabrina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. My pleasure. That was a well-built-out bio. And I'm exhausted just thinking about living in Sweden and Finland and France and then San Francisco. So you've been able to see the world. I've been, and now I'm based in New York. So I settled, at least for the the past four years, uh, but I intend to stay a little bit. Yeah, I love New York. But yes, traveling, and I know we, we talk about our story and where we come from, but my mom is from Finland. My dad is from Italy. I grew up mostly in France and then in Sweden. Um, so I'm a mix of culture, but then, you know, now I'm here in the U.S. and it's been nine years and I'm very excited about that. And I think, you know, I think we'll cover that, but the differences between, you know, Europe, uh, the U.S., you know, customers, it's very exciting to try to 
understand these differences and specifically when you work on global brands. And and so you you touched on where you grew up. Um, you know, one of the things we like to get is the first story. So where you did grow up, and perhaps you know, was there something in your background that suggested you would go into marketing? You'd go into branding. Uh, was there something in your family that you know put you in that direction? So that's funny. Never in my family or was I influenced. So for example, I just like my my mom, as I said, she's from Finland. She didn't speak French. She came, you know, when she was 25. She married my my dad. I grew up in France in a very small town, but because my parents were travelers, I was always able to travel. I visited the world. I did a lot of countries. Uh, I spent all my summers, you know, traveling. And that is something that really made who I am today and the choices that I make today also for my kids, being exposed to different people, different cultures, being open to, or just listening, right? Being curious about, you know, how people live, how they think, et cetera, give you this like openness and this curiosity that I think you really need as a marketer. Right. Like you can you can read and we'll talk about data, but you can have as much data as you want if you do not understand, um, you know, the way of living, the emotions, the drivers, not just the purchase drivers, but the drivers in like people's lives. Uh, it doesn't work. And I think that's really and that was not influenced by anyone in my family. I think it's more the, you know, the travels and being just in a family with like different cultures. My mom from Scandinavia was more of a calm, uh, very uh, nurturing woman. My dad was Italian. So when he speaks, he's very loud and my family's very loud. And like I, you know, at the table during, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas, and like you have like two sides that are very different. So just that can influence who you are and give you the the respect and the curiosity to understand people. Now, my my dad worked in you know a very global company, not in marketing, uh, but he was in international sales. So I knew I wanted to do something that was global. That was my uh, first idea. But something that really influenced me is I was in business school. I was in charge of the student uh, council. And being in charge of that, you organize events, right? And one event I wanted to organize was, you know, around advertising. In France and in London, people love commercials. We do. Like, we have the Cannes Festival, the, the advertisers, the founders of Leo Burnett, DDB, publicists, et cetera, are very influential people in, in Europe. So... I organized one event and I got all of them. I got the Jack Segala, I got the founder of DDB. They all came and I had dinner with these people and I was 18. And that day, like everything changed. I'm like, they're able to reach people's heart and emotions in a way that no one does. And I got very excited. So all my internships and everything I did then was just focus on uh, getting in the best, you know, advertising agencies. So you started your career as uh, what appears to be an account executive, an, a, an AE, as it's called in an agency, Leo Burnett. What does an AE do in an agency environment? So I started, you know, that's the way after 25 years, my resume is a little bit simplified. But I started as a brand manager, as everyone, you know, an advertising agency, but at Leo Burnett, they had they had one department that I really loved, and that's where I started. It was dedicated to challenger brands. 
Um, so the number two on any global market. So uh, if you think about it, you know, McDonald's, for example, was a leader in fast food at this time, but number two, at least in Europe, was called Quick. It's still the case. So we would have these brands. I will have Reebok, you know, against Adidas at this time. So how do you manage challenger brands? You have to be more creative. You have to be innovative. You have to be the first to do something because you have nothing to lose. The leader is usually, you know, I would say not more stagnant, but will take less risk, you know, they they have the market shares. So it's really the beginning of my career at Leo Burnett was to think out of the box and to create brands that are more innovative, but also more empathetic to customers to grab market shares. And I love that. I love the creativity around it. And the fact that I had to work with a smaller budget, it seems odd because I had like hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing budget, but nothing like the leaders uh, there. So I, I loved it. I spent, you know, five years doing that. I grew from brand manager to account executive. So it means that I own the account uh, from a strategy point of view. Uh, and I work um, with the creative teams. I was lucky enough to work with the best creative directors, you know, in a, in agencies, first at Lil Burnett and then at Havas. And I would say in Europe, we'll, we'll talk about that, Mark, but they're very good at being creative, at, you know, being emotional, at capturing the universal truth, the thing that will be really relevant to you, the commercial that will make you stop, you know, and say like, oh, yeah, that is me. And it's talking to me and then change behaviors. They're not good at all the things and we can talk about that that I really focus on. It's like being data-driven, but creating commercials that had an effect and boost sales and really grab market shares. That was what we were, you know, thriving for at this time. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, you talk about, I I, I worked for a company called Brylane, which was a multi-brand catalog business, which was ultimately bought by PPR. French uh, conglomerate, no no longer called PPR, but that was French. And it was my first experience working in an environment where there was a heavily dominated French population of people in the business. And it was my first multicultural kind of work experience. And it was clear that, you know, the Americans were very different in our, the way we thought about things versus the way the French did. Um, so, you know, the fact that you've had these opportunities, you know, has certainly made you, I would imagine, more well-rounded. It did. It didn't. The fact that I was exposed to not only, you know, the French market, but I worked on global brands with this challenger mindset really changed everything. I think just after Leo Burnett, I joined Havas with one mission. I was head of strategy. It was to uh, lead the transformation of the agency. So go back to, it was 2002 or 2005. Yeah, 2005. 2005, yeah. We were not digitally minded, right? So I came to meetings with this kind of brand strategy down to all touch points with what we call at this time 360 degree plans, right? Uh, where we started to create websites and we started to integrate what we call CRM, et cetera, to brands that never heard about it. And even more than this, that was not the, the, the most difficult part. The most difficult part was to transform the way the creative teams were working. They were working to get this print ad 
at the Cannes Festival. And I was telling them, no, 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 you are working right now on a homepage for a website. And that was really hard at this time. If you think about it right now, uh, we have other things like this happening, but that was my first revolution. At this time I was young, I had a lot of ideas, I was digitally driven, when I was working with people from another generation, but that was my role. It's just really leading the strategy and leading the, the, the agency transformation. And that's where I really understood that I was good at leading transformation. And uh, it explains a lot of things, you know, in the rest of my career. Well, what's interesting about what you're explaining is that you were leading transformation, not really on one front, but on two fronts. You were leading it at the agency that you were in, but then also with the clients you were serving. Doubly difficult. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was, the most difficult part was really internal uh, than it was with, with, with clients. As I said, I love challenger brands, but then when you're able to work on, you know, leading brands. I worked, you know, in retail, in fashion, in lifestyle, and you bring this mindset and you're in front of someone who wants to make a difference as well, then, you know, the magic happens. Uh, and it was not the case on all, you know, clients we had, but that's really what Havas was known for, you know, this kind of strategic, creative uh, approach to marketing. And that's what I love in what I do. I'm not someone who can just stay and say, hey, let's be safe. You know, it's riskier not to be innovative and specifically right now. So I always lead, you know, transformation and innovative thinking with a risk. You know, you don't have to have like a huge budget to be creative. So feeling that, you know, in a company, whatever is the brand is always very exciting. Thriving brands today have one thing in common. They make it a priority to understand their customers. Imparity uses AI to unify customer data and help businesses know exactly who their customers are and what they care about most. Find new customers, grow loyalty, get better return on ad spend, and manage privacy compliance. An accurate, unified customer data foundation connected with the teams and tools that need it makes everything you do with customer data work better. Build your strategy on Imparity, the platform for customer data. Learn more at Imparity.com. So there was a moment in time when you said, enough, I've had my share of the agency side, I need to do something else. So where did you go? So the enough was not because of the dark side, Mark. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I really loved it to my core. I work with amazing agencies and uh, I'm still always very impressed of, you know, the amount of work they can do. It was more about the glass selling for women at some point where, you know, what's the next step? And at this point, you know, we're talking about, you know, it wasn't like 10 to 15 years ago. It was very hard for women to find, you know, a nice role past the, the VP level. Something that really amazed me at this time, we talked a lot, at least in Europe, about sustainability. I worked with very large brands and, and corporations that were really into that LVMH, caring, et cetera. So I was leading the way on everything sustainability and um, strategic around that. And I always was amazed by entrepreneurs. I think I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm not brave enough to be. 
uh, to be honest, I met someone and I think, you know, life is about the people you meet and people that can inspire you. And I met the founder of a brand called Akiog. It's not known in the U.S. It is in Europe because it, it's really present in Europe and in Asia, but not in the U.S. It is, I think, 15 years after I can tell you this, this is the most sustainable fashion brand in the world. Uh, she came from amazing design led brands and she created this brand she had an amazing vision she had the taste in design that we needed with the sustainability knowledge and sourcing that never ever was created uh at this time and i wanted to help her so i'm like okay that's a female founded female led company well i cannot you know break the glass ceiling on my end so that's why i made the shift the uh, name of the company is E-K-Y-O-G. And it what what was the uh, product that they sold or that they sell today? It was fashion. It was it's really fashion. fashion. Yeah, it was this the kind of premium fashion uh, market. But when I talk about, you know, sustainability is the ethical aspect, the ecological aspect of it, the sourcing down to the fiber and the field uh, where the organic cotton was grown. At this point, uh, even if I work in a sustainability uh, minded uh, company right now, no one reached this level, but with a lot of taste. So we really disrupted the fashion uh, market. I really took a fashion-driven strategy there to show the fashion first to be aspirational. And then the sherry on the cake was like, you know, you're doing something great. Uh, we had an amazing expansion. I love this journey. I learned so much about you know, when you join a smaller company, not only do you own the PL, but you own the, the overall strategy and every single milestone. So I think it was the right move after 10 years in agencies where you see only the top of the iceberg to be able to really build that. What happened is after a few years, I had kids and my kids were in this school and they were exposed to only same kids. And I can say, Caucasian kids, French kids, they had no interaction with others. My husband lived in 14 countries also, and we decided, okay, now it's time for us to expose them to other cultures, to give them what we had. And I think it's a gift to be able to meet different people. And it was not about the job. It was really about us wanting to move. And that's when we moved to San Francisco. I love the uh, the comment about uh, you know that you're an entrepreneur but not brave enough to do it because you know I've kind of felt that way you know in my career maybe it's not so much brave I just never had a good enough idea that I thought I could take to market but I love you know the idea of being part of something that's growing I was involved I was lucky to be part of a a early stage catalog business in the late 80s and literally there were four of us in that business and I got to you know see it you know really build and grow and ultimately uh sell so I I can uh, certainly comprehend what you're saying so you now moved to San Francisco very different than your other experiences and which business were you working with at that time so I moved so it was an easy move because my husband works in tech so when we decided we wanted to go to San Francisco or Sydney we just said it was a joke the first one who finds a job the other one will quit 
it took him 48 hours. So I'm just like, okay, so I quit my job. I moved with him and the kids uh, to San Francisco. I had the strong belief, and that's that's funny because when you look back, that I had such a strong background to be able to define, you know, visions for brands, what a brand could be, and really create these very strong brand strategies. And I get to San Francisco, I live in the Bay Area, and I'm like, girl, you're not ready. And like, you know how to create these emotional connections, but... As far as data analytics, I really realized that, you know, Europe was behind. Uh, so what I did first, you know, two weeks after I moved, I started to work for a startup in incubator uh, or accelerator, I should say, uh, for female entrepreneurs. I did that. I knew it was a three months, you know, project, but I wanted to really immerse myself in Silicon Valley. I really wanted to understand this entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, everyone talks about. But also I wanted to go through all of the, I would say, trainings that this accelerator was providing. So it was kind of a win-win. I was doing their global marketing strategy and positioning. And at the same time, they were giving me the opportunity to go through all of these trainings and meet all of these amazing, talented people, either in AI, uh, in uh, like venture capitalist, uh, data scientist, et cetera, that I would never have met otherwise, but I did it for three months. It helped me a lot. And then just after that, Sears, and I didn't know Sears and Kmart because they do not exist in Europe, but Sears hired a new president for their uh, apparel business unit. You have to know like Sears is in Chicago, but the apparel business unit is totally separated. It's a very different company. It's in San Francisco. And they hired someone that I knew by name uh, who worked in many fashion companies in Europe uh, as the president of the apparel business unit. Long story short, networking, we get to meet. He's like, I'm building a new leadership team. And he was bringing people from Zara as a GMM. Uh, the other um, uh, finance was coming from Levi's, like a very strong leadership team. He got me very excited. And he's like, we have two years to turn around that business. So that's when I joined uh, Sears and Kmart Apparel. And we did what was, you know, impossible at this time. We had a really strong free card. Uh, to do what we felt was right. So not only with my background was I was I able to reposition the brands and the brands within Kmart and Sears. So, so that's very important. The celebrity brands, brands that were attracting younger demographics. I remember even the Jacqueline Smith brand. Like it's it's so funny. It was four hundred million dollars of business per year, and no one was doing anything. So. I took over all of these brands and I started to really reposition them and drive uh, growth in revenue. But at the same time, he hired an amazing CDO from Google and he's a, his number two was from Amazon. So they were sitting next to me and imagine the customer base of Sears. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people and they never really activated it the way we're doing right now, right? So... I had this like jewel at my fingertips that could tell me everything about my customers. And I had these talented people to tell me how to extract what was actionable from a marketing perspective. So I started to really learn about how data can inform my strategies, how to justify my spend. I think a lot of brand marketers don't know how to 
prove their ROAS, maybe in digital, but in brand marketing, it's very difficult. So when you start building new models like this with these people, we were able to turn around that business from being down 150 million in EBITDA to being positive 200 million after two years. But it was really like a strong teamwork with like talented people trying to turn around it. And then they asked me to take over the marketing for the full Sears business and really join the central team in Chicago. And I, I that was not really what I wanted to do. I think the freedom we had on one side and what was happening on the other side was not what I was looking for. So that's when I left. Element is an award-winning advertising agency optimizing e-commerce campaigns around profit. In fact, they've helped 13 of their customers get acquired, with one selling for nearly $800 million and one that IPO'd recently. Plus, they were ranked as the 12th fastest growing agency in the world by Adweek. If you're an e-commerce business that needs help scaling your ads profitably, check them out at element.com, spelled E-L-U-M-Y-N-T.com. Although, you know, you went to work for another really important brand, uh, Ann Taylor, and, and that was in during COVID, I, I guess, as uh, a piece of that time. I want to jump to Hanky Panky because um, I, I think, you know, that's your your current role. So talk about uh, you started uh, Hanky Panky, uh, I think, October of uh, 2021. So we're still in COVID at the time. What was your attraction to the brand? So I think, you know, just a, a few words about this Loft and Terror episode, because I was hired there to transform the the company, you know, the brand towards being customer centric. The success I had doing that for Kmart and Sears, they wanted the CEO, it was Gary Muto at this time, said to me, listen, I get hundreds of spreadsheets, he will remember, uh, and I get like hundreds of decks from the inside team, but I don't know what to do with that. So what I do is I know how to tell you what's actionable and what's not and transform it into strategies. So that's what I've done for um, some time. COVID hit, the company was purchased, Gary left, and this customer-centric strategy was put aside. And that's when I met, it, it's just always about meeting the right people. I was called for this role at Hanky Panky. I initially said, no, I'm not interested. And then they convinced me to meet with the team. So the CEO and the founders. And then I realized, oh my God, first two women, two best friends who created a company in 1977, two women, that's bold just by itself. Uh, they're still around, they're still leading this company and they have one of the most loved products by women in the US. They sell one every 10 seconds, millions of women love their product, but my when I, when I get there, I understood that they never used the power of marketing to just grow the business. The business was profitable for 46 years, still very relevant, but never did they use, you know, the the power of, you know, the right marketing tools and the DTC and, and any DTC um, talents to uh, build it. So I joined for that reason, but for also something that I wanted to prove. And I think that's the core of what I, I think can be an actionable insight from our uh, discussion is the new role of a CMO. 
I specifically asked to obviously creative, brand marketing, digital marketing, and the DTC business. So I'm in charge of e-com and stores, not just the marketing piece, really the, the business and the PL, because I do believe really strongly that being customer-centric means that you have to break all silos and you have to inspire and build a team with the same vision uh, and the same objectives. And it's a balance between building strong brand equity and performance. And I love it. I think it's been very successful. So a couple of things. Uh, is there private equity involved in the business or is it still owned by the two founders? Still self-funded uh, by the two founders, but you're, you know, that's exactly kind of the next milestone is I spent the last year and a half to prove the, um, from a data perspective, uh, the potential of growth and specifically of the DTC business for a brand like this. Uh, now it's just like 2024 will be a, a cornerstone for the brand uh, in its evolution. And so in channels that you're selling, are are there hanky-panky standalone stores? Yeah, we started last yeah. year. So I we opened two. First in New York, we have one on Bleecker Street in West Village, doing amazing. We broke even after six months with was, you know, way uh, beyond our expectations. We have one in Williamsburg. And right now we're really thinking about what's next. But yes, uh, we'll expand our own stores over the next few years. We'll still have a very strong wholesale business from department stores to specialty stores. Uh, and it's a global channel for us. And the e-com business is really where the growth is coming right now um, with a, a strong potential on a global scale. Any Amazon business? We're on Amazon too. Yeah, we started right after COVID hit. And I think it was a very smart move from the company to start Amazon at this time. So you think about data, you've talked about data quite a bit in, in your roles. When you came to the company, were they advanced from a data perspective or were they behind? And and where do you feel like you are now? And, and what does the roadmap look like for you know better at being able to leverage data to activating audiences, et cetera? I think, you know, when I joined, it was a very clear, you know, um, starting point uh, with the CEO and the founders. They knew they were wholesale driven uh, and they needed, you know, kind of a leader to transform the company towards being omnichannel, not just DTC driven, but omnichannel. So it's not a, an easy journey, to be honest. And I'm not from wholesale. So I'm a DTC driven person. So I had to learn also a lot from the wholesale team. But the magic of it is gigantic. When you come with a fresh eye and answer your question, for example, I'm using DTC as a lab for wholesale. I'm launching limited edition of things that we think will be uh, drivers of growth. Uh, in the future, I'm launching a DTC, I gather the data from the launch, the feedback, et cetera, and then I can present, the team can present to our wholesale partners in a DTC-driven way. That has been very successful for us, and we're multiplying this one. So that's from a data perspective, is how one channel can help the other. That's one thing. Then, yes, the access to data was nothing. Uh, we started not from scratch, but almost. And that has been my focus for a year and a half. How do we make sure that we have a single view of our customer? And so we just integrated, for example, CDP a few a few months ago uh, to be able to get there. I had, you know, I outsourced, I had a lot of consultants that I worked with to 
enable me to have this vision and to have the tools to make the right decisions. Right now, I would say we're at the baby stage. I always say, you know, we crawl, walk, and run. We're crawling right now, and an integration takes some time, uh, but I'm very excited about what it can bring next year as far as segmentation, personalization. As I said at the beginning, I don't think what well, I think it's riskier not to innovate. I am bringing with the team generative AI and testing things that will have taken me like maybe like two years in a bigger company. I can do it within a month test it out, see if it works, and then scale the investment towards it. So it's funny because it's a heritage brand, but with a very strong entrepreneurial spirit and startup mindset. And it has been very fun to work on that. In 22, we're up 40% on the market that was just, you know, a growing single digit. Uh, it's because of this startup mindset and this data-driven, you know, marketing, I think. A number of questions come to mind as you continue to explain your situation. So can you talk about which CDP you chose? So we we went with Insider. They have, so what was interesting about them, first, they are leaders in Europe and they were starting in the US, but they come with the full CDP ESP integration. It has been a journey. We're still working on the integration right now. I think, you know, we'll be able to be more successful. I always talk with peers and they're just like, yeah, but whomever you work with, it will take some time or more time than you think. When will we be up and running? I do believe we were very advanced in personalization at Lofton and Taylor. This is really something that I want to bring, not because it works. It's because of two things. When you're able to be relevant to the customer you talk to, not just from a personalization perspective, from a brand perspective, and designed for relevance and not just objective, it changes everything. So that is something that's where the brand and performance balance is very important. And two, I am very driven by being profitable. I think no brand can be successful if we're not as a team focused on being relevant and profitable. So that's exactly why it's not data for data's sake. It's like what can um, help the brand to be even more profitable. The intimate space, you know, continues to have lots of new players that seemingly enter the market. You know, I think, you know, folks would, you know, look at Victoria's Secret and they were the leader and, you know, now over time, their business has changed and there are lots of other players that have entered the market. Skims, you know, is one that just, you know, skyrocketed. So while you're trying to build your brand, how are you challenged by the fact that you want to grow your business, but there's also lots of new players coming into the market that might even be better capitalized than you are? Yeah, that's that's a key question. And that was one from, you know, this year was really something that we focused on. I think first is understanding that you don't want to be like the others and we're not like we have like 40 years of um, heritage, legacy and trust. Uh, we're still leaders in lace uh, in the industry. I think it's about positioning the brand the right way. So if you think about this market, yes, Victoria's Secret is their leaders. They lost market shares, you know, over the past few years. And then you have the Savage Fenty and the Schemes, et cetera. Most of these brands are focused on what you project to the world, you know, as a woman. 
to someone else or to the your surroundings. That is not what we do. Like, of course, you, I want women to look their best, but that is not what we do. We are deeply empathetic. That is really important. This brand grew out of caring for women, not for what they project to someone else, but how they feel. And I will go to the extent of talking about sexy because it has been like a topic for Victoria's Secret for so long. You can be sexy if you feel good in your skin. If you feel sexy, it doesn't have to be for someone else. I think there's nothing more powerful than a sexy lingerie set beneath an oversized sweater. No one knows, but you feel very powerful. And I think going deeper than just trying to sell products, but trying to understand what women are going through. Sexy is one thing, but there are a lot of life stages and things that are still very taboos around women that we're not talking about. And why is our product, it has been, our iconic product has been copied a million times, never matched. Uh, why? Because we are caring about women. We put the investment in our sourcing, in the sustainability of our product, in making sure it's durable, making sure you can move in it and makes you look good and feel good. I think that's a very different positioning. I won't be the leader in this industry, but I will talk to a lot of women who wants to feel good and look good without, you know, and, and it's an investment, you know, we're in the premium market. I'm very amazed by what Schemes does. Uh, I think they're doing a great job, but our direct competitors at our level, first, they're struggling because I think the focus on customers is key. And two, the new entrants these past few years are mostly DTC driven and they're not getting the funding that they used to get. So I expect 24 to be a more stable environment for us to work on with less new entrants, to be honest. So I'm less worried about that. I'm really worried about, or just I'm focused on building a differentiated brand that is showing growth and profitable growth. Yeah, uh, super interesting. You know, I, I've had experiences working in wholesale first organizations. So I know exactly the kinds of challenges that, you know, somebody that's running, you know, D to C and, and also somebody that has a, a complete umbrella view of, uh, of the customer must go through. So kudos to you and the good work. We could spend all day talking, but we're down to the end of the show. Um, I do this uh, two minute drill, seven questions, one word answer. Are you ready? I am. Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Goop. Favorite app on your phone? Well, the one I spend most time on is Instagram. So <laughs> I'll say that one. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Well, I shouldn't say that. Guilt. I'm guilty. <laughs> Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? Photography. I'm good at art directing, but I'm not a photographer. Would love to be one one day. A charitable organization that you're passionate about? Hearts of Gold. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Being able to uplift people every time I meet them. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? My house. I okay. love my house. And where can people reach out to you uh, on social media if they were interested in doing so? Well, as I said, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. So I'm on Instagram, uh, Subcherubini, and I'm also on LinkedIn, love networking. So you can find me, Sabrina Cherubini, on, Insta on LinkedIn. 
Yeah, she's a good uh, networker on LinkedIn. That's how we met. And she was very gracious to respond. <laughs> and I'm happy we so, did, Mark. Yes, absolutely. Sabrina, this was a really nice conversation. I appreciate uh, your time. Uh, your experiences are uh, amazing. And uh, perhaps we'll have another time uh, somewhere down the road to chat some more. I would love that. Thank you, Mark. Have a good day. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Sabrina Cherubini for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, we heard Sabrina speak about all the countries she's lived in and how the movement to Europe and back to the U.S. have helped her become a better marketer. If your role requires you to sell something to a customer, there's no better way than to immerse yourself into their lifestyle. Sabrina credits her marketing success to the multiple cultures that she's exposed herself to throughout her career. If you have the opportunity to broaden your view, take it. It can be really helpful. And number two, I loved her line about how she thought that she was an entrepreneur, but wasn't brave enough to actually act on it. She did have an opportunity to spend time in an early stage company. So if you can't start your own, try and get that early stage experience elsewhere. I was lucky enough to do so very early in my career and absolutely loved it. The opportunity to truly establish the rules of the road were amazing. And number three, as we hear during many of my shows, numbers and data are important to help you market to a customer, but it does not take the place of living and breathing with your target audience. Get out and meet them where they live. Understand what makes them tick and how they live their lives. That will help you better craft your message. Should it tug on their emotions? Should it be more practical as to how your product solves their problems? Or do you just use some humor to get their attention? Not everyone responds the same way to the same message. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details.